Welcome to episode 1022 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangrass presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindberg of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangrass. Hello, Jeff. Hello. It's a team preview podcast, so later in this episode, we're going to talk to my other baseball podcast co-host, Michael Bauman, about the Philadelphia Phillies. We're also going to talk to Zachary Levine about the Astros, but you have something brief to banter about before we get there? So one quick thing and one other slightly less quick thing one thing real quick that i saw mm-hmm. in the effectively wild facebook group there was a video of yoan mancata who apparently has a son i did not <laughs> oh, yeah. know that yoan mancata has a son but his son who is two years old is featured in this video not only hitting a baseball and then proceeding to run to first base but flipping his bat in a very exaggerated manner when he is about mm-hmm. the little league equivalent of 45 feet away from home plate so he uh yeah. he carries his bat he sort of outstretched in front of him until he gets mm-hmm. far enough down the line that he just tosses it away out of disgust. So it's uh, it's adorable in the way that kids doing things that adults do is adorable. You can easily see Yohan Mankata teaching his child to flip his bat in a friendly competition. Of course, Yohan Mankata would therefore be a bat flipping role model, meaning we can expect mm-hmm. to see some bat flips from him in the future. One thing for his son to work on, if you look at the video, he flips his bat, but then he stops and he considers to go pick up his bat uh, before running to first base. The idea is that once you flip your bat, you flip it in disgust, like you don't need it anymore. And his kid went in pursuit thinking, maybe I will need this again, which is not the point. So there's some finer points to work on. But ultimately, for a two-year-old to be able to know how and when to flip his bat before he can probably even speak, that's that's pretty (laughs) impressive. And I am a big fan. But yeah, he's clearly ahead of the developmental curve for the, the typical two-year-old's bat flipping ability. But yeah. yeah, I was watching that and it was super cute, of course. But I feel like I've seen more of these kids doing bat flip videos and they're always cute and great. And the thing is that those kids are soon going to be older and they're going to become adults. That's what happens to kids. And <laughs> by the time that This generation of kids who is starring in cute videos where they bat flip now becomes an adult generation, the generation that's in Major League Baseball playing baseball. We're going to see this as the standard. I think it won't just be the exception. Now, if everyone bat flips constantly, then it'll lose its novelty and no one will care about bat flips anymore. It's kind of interesting now just because it goes against the tradition of the game and it's not something you see everyone do. So once it becomes something everyone does, then it won't be any more interesting than, I don't know, people gesturing to the sky after they cross home plate or any other ball player mannerism. But we're clearly headed for a time when this is not just the province of cute kids in internet videos, but it's just going to be the standard in all levels of baseball. That's right. It's coming. Populism, man. This is the era. Mm-hmm. So yeah. on a on a less light note, but still kind of a light note, this is also the weekend of the uh, the Yankees defeating Dylan Batances in arbitration, and then the president of the Yankees, I guess, I don't know, gloating about it, basically, <laughs> basically to the press, yeah. which was <laughs> weird. So Randy Levine, Levine, I don't care to know how it's pronounced. Yeah, uh, I think he's already pretty much hated by Yankees fans uh, across the board mm-hmm. for generally being a tool. But I would like to, I was going to read from, this is a quote within a Ken Rosenthal article. This is not Ken Rosenthal writing, uh, but this is a quote from somebody else. I'm not going to bother scrolling up to see who it is. Anyway, this has probably been his agent. So <clears throat> I'll begin now. Quote, 
With regards to Dellen, it was very ironic to hear the Yankees president express his love and affection when he spent the only portion of the hearing, arbitration hearing, to which he contributed to, was calling this player by the wrong first name. It is Dellen, for the record. <laughs> right. He was calling him Dylan. He then proceeded to blame Dellen for the Yankees' declining ticket sales and the lack of playoff history while trying to bully the panel, saying something to the effect that the sky will fall if they rule for the player. Now... I get why Batantis lost in arbitration. I get that maybe his mm -hmm. agents did, in fact, file it too high of a number. We know how arbitration yeah. works. It is antiquated and backwards, and it works against a player like Batantis. But how, where where do you get... How do you... First, okay, hold on. Dylan <laughs> Batantis is, like, by by contract and performance, he's maybe the most valuable relief pitcher in baseball. He is has been one of the best Yankees for, what, three, three years, I think? I mm -hmm. haven't checked but that would make yeah. sense going to arbitration right so he's been incredibly valuable so i don't know first of all how you don't know his first name and that just speaks it <laughs> that's one of those ugly reminders of oh right the people in charge of baseball teams might not really care about baseball that much but then there's the ticket thing and here's it's already it's stupid right first of all to say it's dylan batanza's fault that the yankees are selling fewer tickets maybe it's because they're not going to the playoffs and winning world series but just two weeks ago the owner of the Yankees, Hal Steinbrenner, said that Aralis Chapman sells tickets. They love right. him, Steinbrenner said. There are so few baseball players that I can feel really get fans who buy a ticket and bring their kids to the game, and he's one of them. So Aralis Chapman brings fans to the game. Dylan Batantis drives them away, apparently, even though Batantis <laughs> has been basically as good as Chapman has been, and he throws more innings. You have to figure that the president of the Yankees and the owner of the Yankees have enough communication. They've probably talked about the ticket sales. It might be the only thing they talk about, actually, as I imagine what those conversations are like. So all in all, just on every single level, Randy Levine comes out of this looking like a complete and utter tool. And I think this <laughs> yeah. is indelible. This, this leaves an indelible mark. Indelible as Randy Levine would pronounce it. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's really, the Yankees are on a terrible anti-PR role. Not that it really matters probably for the Yankees, but between Hal Steinrenner's comments about Chapman and how basically we should all just forget about whatever he did and now Randy Levine and Lon Trost, who's another Yankees executive who sort of has made comments to the effect of how bad it would be if rich people had to sit with poor people at baseball games. They are really painting themselves as sort of this team of the 1%, which I guess they are. And <laughs> maybe that works out okay for them because those people are buying luxury boxes and making the Yankees profitable. But yeah, they are extremely unlikable. I think I've I've seen many acknowledgments of that, even from fans of the team, just how hard they are making themselves to root for, not only by not being as good as the Yankees have historically been, but just these comments that they constantly come up with. And yeah, I can't think of any reason why Chapman would sell tickets while Batantis wouldn't unless like they seem to be really proud of the fact that Chapman throws very hard and maybe it's a fun spectator experience to have but, Chapman throwing but 105. But Batantis and, throws 100. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's I mean, no one like sits there in awe and watches the number of flash on the scoreboard after Batantis throws, but yeah, it's not a huge difference and I doubt anyone's really buying tickets on the off chance that the closer will pitch and that when he pitches he'll throw hard, which he does every single time he pitches. So doesn't seem like that much of a draw to me, I guess. Batantis is responsible for their losing ticket sales in that he is not 
Mariana Rivera, and no one is coming to watch a Dylan Batantis farewell tour, which is uh, true. He hasn't been there for 20 years and put together a Hall of Fame career and become beloved by fans. So in that sense, you could blame him for not having done that yet. <laughs> so, I mean, last year, <laughs> last year, Dylan Batantis. Uh, okay, so Araldis Chapman last year struck out 41% of hitters. He walked 8%. Dylan Batantis mm-hmm. struck out 42% of hitters and walked 9%. They were the yeah. same. He throws like <laughs> two miles per hour slower than the hardest thrower that's ever thrown baseballs in the world. Yep. And I may, I mean, so the only, the only other explanation here is that maybe there is something about Dylan Batantis that drives fans away and we just don't know what it is. It's super deep. It's super awful. Maybe, maybe he actively like compels people not to get tickets. Maybe he is just like undermining the Yankees at every turn, but based on his performance, he's doing a very bad job of that. Just an inexplicable weekend for Randy yeah. Rodin. Yeah. I mean, arbitration hearings are like that. It's the team's job to make the player sound bad, basically. And it's always kind of awkward because then you have to go back to being friends again. But what you don't normally do is take those arguments outside of the arbitration room (laughs) and hold a press conference basically to (laughs) (laughs) celebrate your win and denigrate the player. And yeah, as you said, I think Levine had a point in that we know how arbitration works. It's based on comparable players. It's based on stats like saves. And so Delmatantis does not have that. And if the five million that his agents filed for, if he had gotten that, it would have been unprecedented. And so maybe it's a bad idea to bank on something unprecedented happening. Mm-hmm. It's nice to try to set that precedent, I suppose, but comes at Patantis's expense. So Levine's right in that respect, maybe, but he put it in such an unpleasant way. Yeah. <laughs> that it's hard to want to give any credence to that. I'll close with one factoid. I don't know how many people are familiar with ERA minus. I guess it's the opposite of ERA plus that people would be more familiar with. But ERA minus is like one of those stats where 100 is average. And if you're a pitcher, lower is better. Aroldis Chapman has a career ERA minus of 53. That's basically twice as good as average. He's been outstanding. Dylan Batansis has a career ERA minus of 53. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, so that's that. Let's move on to team previews and go from one Levine to another. All right, so we are starting today's previews with the Houston Astros. And to discuss the Astros, we have former Houston Astros beat writer for the Houston Chronicle and Baseball Prospectus alum as well, who also wrote the Houston Astros essay in this year's Baseball Prospectus annual and has been a frequent guest on this podcast, Zachary Levine. Hey, Zachary. How are you? All right. So I really liked your essay. You talked about how curses develop and when a drought becomes a curse, and you tried to evaluate where the Astros are in that cycle. So what did you discover about the World Series-less Astros and where their drought stands? Yeah, so you know they are one of the original National League expansion teams and have gone their whole existence without a World Series. So the first problem in kind of trying to define it as a a drought or a curse is there's no year you can chant. You can't, you know, like we, what Yankee (laughs) fans did with the Reds, you can't chant 1918 or there's no significance of 1908. They've just never won one. And in some ways that's 
more damning to never have won one versus to have won one that nobody remembers. Uh, mm-hmm. But in some ways, there's just there's not as much you can attach to it. The fact that that their neighbors, uh, the Texas Rangers, have also never won one, kind of uh, kind of makes it. They have a, a partner in all this, but the the Astros have been in the same city for their entire existence. They've obviously been to the one World Series. They've never won a World Series game. Uh, so there are kind of milestones along the way that, that it took them a long time to hit and, and some that they've still never hit. Uh, but as far as a, a, you know, becoming a full-fledged curse like the Cubs or like the Red Sox, I kind of think of them more as, you know, paralleling what maybe the White Sox did, where, they, where they're kind of, they're not a major team at the forefront of the, of the national conversation like the Cubs and the Red Sox. They, they, they've kind of been in the background. And I think that's, that's what's helped this, you know, this, this thing could get to 60, 70, 80 years without being a major story like, uh, like some of the other teams out there. So related to trying to bust this alleged, I guess, controversial curse, we have an Astros team right now that looks pretty much the most complete that an Astros team has looked in, I don't know, maybe since they went to the World Series and got swept. And it seems that people have perceived that if there's a vulnerability, it's the rotation. It's why people keep linking them to the White Sox and Jose Quintana. But to what extent do you believe that the rotation actually is a vulnerability because as I look at it one through six or seven I I see things to like in all six or seven pitchers yeah I mean I think it's a major league rotation I think they're not going to get to the point where it it might not have the upside of some but you're not going to get to the point where I think you're going to be really concerned about well what are we going to do today or what are we going to do tomorrow or things like that where where I think one through one through seven are in a place where you're going to be able to get capable and competent starting pitching I looked at the Pakota projections and was thought those were extremely optimistic on the pitching staff. You know, to to have them allowing the fewest runs in the league is is probably farther than I would be willing to go uh, with this rotation. But uh, it looks like one where Keuchel, McHugh, McCullers, you know, you're going to be in a position where you you should be favored in a series. Uh, going in with those three guys against pretty much every team you're going to face, and then the back end is a is a perfectly legitimate back end, and one that I think with a little bit of depth and with a couple guys in the bullpen who might be swingman types, you could uh, you could probably survive some injuries as well. Some sort of bounce back from Dallas Keuchel, of course, would go a long way toward making the rotation look better. And obviously he was having a down year and then he missed a month with injuries and he's coming back from shoulder problems. I guess the question is how much of the performance was related to the shoulder or how much was just other factors, just regular decline for a guy who kind of was succeeding in a way that not a whole lot of pitchers do at that level. And then the other question then becomes, well, if it was the shoulder, can you come back from that? So. Those are two tough questions to answer, probably. Yeah, and, and I think where I would start is is probably in the stats. He's always been a he had always been a FIP outperformer. Uh, he'd been somebody that, through his kind of insane ground ball rate, had been a, a guy who was, you know, who was gonna even absent the stats that that a pitcher has full control over was going to had success and that was true in the in 14 and in the in the Cy Young year. Last year he uh he underperformed his FIP. He had a a 383 FIP and a 455 ERA. 
And, you know, I think if I were looking for signs of, of kind of promise or that he would be expected to return, I would probably start there. Ultimately, I think he's somewhere in between. I don't, I think he is, I think the Cy Young is something I, I doubt that you're going to see him get to that level again. But I, I also think that he is you know, someone I would want at, at the top of my rotation. If the question was take it or leave it as the, as the top of your rotation starter, you know, I, might, I might sort of be, be pretty happy with that. And uh, I think he's the kind of guy who, who will bounce back from that. Last year, sticking with the rotation, last year, Joe, uh, Joe Musgrove, between the minors and the majors, he started, what is this, 24 games overall, and he walked, uh, that would be 26 batters, so 26 batters, <laughs> walked in 24 starts. He had, I think, a, a fairly promising Major League uh, cup of coffee, he started 10 games, 11 appearances. I'm not sure whether, if it were opening day right now, if Musgrove would be in the top five of the starting rotation, but if you were to rank all of the Astros current starters and starter candidates where would you slot in Musgrove because he seems to be probably the biggest reason that they haven't traded for Jose Quintana yet because they don't want to give him up right and and I think I would put him five or six and and the big other question there is I think the five or six is less a question about Musgrove and more a question about Mike Fires who Mm -hmm. you know who can be one of the the most infuriating pitchers that you could ever imagine just because you have no idea what you're going to get start to start that he can be he can be brilliant i mean he threw a no hitter uh, in an astros uniform and he can also be gone by the third inning and you know neither one of those things surprises you so uh, i think i would probably start musgrove as six but fires would probably be the guy that that i would have the shortest leash on just because the performance can be can kind of go downhill so quickly mm-hmm. we've talked about almost every other starter we might as well complete the bingo card and bring up lance mccullers who is working on a changeup. of course he's been sort of a two-pitch pitcher and maybe that's been part of why he hasn't been able to go deeper into games and have more success even though those two pitches are pretty good and people have wondered about his future whether it's the rotation or the bullpen and He is obviously trying to make it the rotation, and I guess I'm asking you how he's going to do with a pitch that none of us has seen yet, (laughs) so there's no way that you can really answer that, but were you a (laughs) McCullers believer before the news that he was working on a changeup? Yeah, I think so, and obviously, you've heard all of the reliever stuff, and and even to the point where you were hearing closer-type words thrown around with him, just because the the stuff is so good if he were to kind of concentrate and let it play up in that role. But yeah, I'm a I'm a McCullers believer. I think they have to be a little bit careful just because you heard the word elbow a little bit last year, and and I don't think it was, you know, I don't think it was all that serious you know, in terms of things that they have to be thinking about going forward. But I, I think health permitting, he should get every chance in the rotation. And and yeah, I would I would definitely like to see what he does with with that additional pitch in his arsenal. And and I think that he has the possibility of kind of becoming the guy in that rotation uh, over the next few years. Last season, a very unheralded pitcher named Michael Flees came up through 65 major league innings, striking out 95 major league hitters. I'll just let that sink in as you can calculate your own rate in your head. And today I came across an article and the article is titled this by Jake Kaplan in the Houston Chronicle titled Michael Flees has a quote leg up on Astros bullpen job. 95 strikeouts 
65 innings, leg up, implying there's some question here. This is not about Michael Feliz, but can you remember an Astros team that had a bullpen that is this deep where Michael Feliz might not even be able to crack it on opening day? Yeah, no, this is... um... You know, they have had deep bullpen. Like, they've had deep bullpens when you talk about not necessarily there are, it can go seven guys deep, but they've had bullpens of, what was it, Dotel, Lidge, and Wagner all at the same time in the, in the late 90s, where you have three guys who could legitimately be your, your shutdown guy, who could be your closer, and in some cases went, had to go other places to, to clear it out and be the closer. So they've had issues like this before. Uh, I don't think they've ever had one that that goes this deep in terms of of the number of of guys you could slot in, and that's part of the reason why I think you know with the with the rotation, a couple of those guys could be the type who could stretch out four or five innings, and and that really might be all the Astros would be asking for from a starter, because because I think getting to the bullpen with this team is not necessarily going to be a problem, but but something that that might uh that might do them well in a game so it's the it's the kind of thing where if one of these guys does have to go to the rotation they could they could almost be putting entire bullpen games together just with someone who happens to walk out there for the first inning so carlos correa's season last year was fantastic of course he was worth about five wins he was 21 that's great i think Maybe, if anything, people's expectations were inflated even higher than that by how well he had done as a rookie in 2015. And in 99 games as a rookie, he hit more home runs than he did in 153 games last season. That was the one area where he didn't do as well, relatively speaking. His power was down a bit while most of the leagues was up. And, you know, he could be exactly as good as he was last year for the next decade or decade and a half, and he'd be one of the best players in baseball over that span, and everyone would be happy, I think. But did we learn anything about him? Should we adjust our power expectations or our peak expectations at all? Or should we say he was 21 and the ceiling is still as high as any players in baseball? Yeah, I, I think it's it's just as high as any players in baseball. I mean, you look at the body, you look at uh, what he did accomplish last year in, uh, in raising his walk rate uh, as much as he did. I think as the power... Yeah went down what really took the place of that was was something that you're just as encouraged to see in a in someone who's only 21 so uh, you know I think as far as becoming the complete offensive player I, I don't think he he really missed a missed a step last year and and he's somebody who whether at shortstop or third base which is definitely a, a conversation for some time in the next five years he can, you know, hold his own at, at either position. The bat is obviously good enough for, would be good enough for a move to the corner if, if that's uh, either by body type or by Alex Bregman becomes the, the thing that they need to do. Um, so, but yeah, no, he is a star in the making and, and a star currently as well. Well, I had Bregman on the Ringer MLB show earlier this offseason, and I asked him about the positional thing, and it it didn't sound like he was completely resigned to playing a corner forever. Like yeah. It sounded like he was still sort of hoping maybe or at least expecting that possibly someday he could head back to shortstop. Is this going to be like a Jeter, A-Rod sort of question for the next few years? Yeah, it could be, or one of them could get traded. Or I mean, there's a lot of things that could happen. I, I would imagine 
you know, there's going to be a spot for both of them. They're both obviously talented enough players and, and both hit well enough. So, you know, I think you know, Correa is the, the bigger guy and, and shortstops are getting bigger. And, and obviously the A-Rod comp works pretty perfectly uh, in terms of, of body type and everything for him. But, you know, over the over the next few years, it's it's something they're going to have to sort out. It's It's not the worst problem to have. And, you know, they have such a such a glut in the sort of four corners and dh spots right now that even if they do make a trade i think that that it would uh it would do the team well kind of for for all those spots so there's a lot of different ways they can approach it they're obviously going to need an incredible package to trade any of them but it's definitely a, a situation where over the next few years this will kind of resolve itself one way or the other a few years ago, the Astros struck out more than any other team in baseball. Two years ago, they struck out more than almost any other team in baseball. Last year, again, they struck out almost more than anybody else in baseball. And now, Sigma's last year, there were uh, there were 438 players who batted at least 100 times. The third best strikeout rate, lowest for a hitter, Julius Gurriel, about 9%. Sixth lowest strikeout rate, strikeout rate Nori Aoki just under 10%, eighth best strikeout rate, Jose Altuve, just under 10%. Of course, they bring in Brian McCann, who's a decent contact hitter, Carlos Beltran, who gives you a good at bat pretty much every single time. Josh Reddick does not strike out very much. Alex Bregman did not strike out much in the minors. The When I ran the math, the Astros project to strike out less than any other team in baseball, which is insane just because of the speed with which they've transitioned. But to what extent do you think this has been an intentional plan on the team's part to make more contact, or is this just a a side effect of getting better, more experienced hitters in a crowded lineup? Yeah, I I wish I knew, and it's something that that I hope if if it hasn't been done, someone who's kind of actively covering the team this spring will ask because there's definitely an answer to this question of is it yes <laughs> or no, and there are people who have worked in you know in our industry, your industry, who've gone to work for this team and are you know hard at work at figuring out kind of what's the what's the best of approach to optimizing a lineup so i don't know the answer to that i know that that there were you know there were a couple of things that just kind of happened uh when it comes to things like you know jason castro's free agency hitting for instance he's a guy who who strikes out a lot for someone who doesn't hit for a ton of power chris carter obviously kind of he's someone who bounces around but his time in Houston having come and gone. Um, so th- there's probably a little bit of a, uh, of a, just a timing thing of this, but you know, the, the fact that they're bringing in, the guys that they're bringing in all uh, not, or not necessarily all, but as a group kind of have this quality, make me think that, that there was something, uh, something a little bit, uh, intentional behind it. But, uh, I would, I would definitely look forward to, to reading a story if any, uh, any of the beat writers are listening. And this was the winter when the Astros really spent and they supplemented with veterans. Do you think they did that in an efficient way? Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I, I wrote in my essay is that, that spending has been, has been trending up pretty consistently that in 2013, uh, payroll was 26 million, 2014, 52 million. 2015, 72 million. Last year, 98 million. So they're they're going up, but yeah, this year was the was the year in which they they kind of brought in the names and and they didn't go out and and get the big name. But yeah, the, I I think that in general 
it was you know, there were some things they needed. They needed a catcher, and they needed they needed one more bat. I thought the Aoki one looks a little bit strange. If you're talking about efficiency, looks a little bit strange with the other moves, just because you know they have so many guys who can play the corners now, and you know there's going to be so many matchup issues and and a, a lineup that. That might have different players at different positions all the time, but in general, yeah, I thought uh, I was a little surprised it was so position heavy. But but in general, no, I thought they uh, they spent pretty wisely in terms of value on the on the guys they did get. So I guess just kind of positional approach surprised me, but uh, but yeah, I thought it was uh, it was fairly efficient as a as a bundle. As uh, as the Astros have changed the look of their lineup and again it's it's incredibly deep Mike Petriello found out through his own means that the Astros have the deepest offense now in baseball in terms of I believe above average hitters one of the things they've I don't want to say sacrificed but made worse is the uh, the defense and included in that is George Springer who looks like right now he's going to get a far larger opportunity in center field so what is what is your understanding of Springer's defense and how versatile is he is out there? Are they going to miss having a, a lot of Marisnik at all, or is he going to be good enough? Yeah, I think so. I think they will, but it's definitely a sacrifice, and there are going to have to be a lot of sacrifices on this team. Like you know, getting Carlos Beltran, and what happens when you need Evan Gaddis's bat in the lineup? There's there's just going to have to be some spots for some of these guys and and some of them they can kind of get away with what Minute Maid Park's left field looks like just with uh, it plays a lot like Fenway for for those who are are less familiar with with Houston's park with a, a high wall kind of close in to the plate uh center field became easier this year um with uh getting rid of Tows Hill and uh, and putting a, a shorter wall out there. So the need for a ton of speed and, and pretty, you know, really great roots back on a ball is, is probably a little bit less important in center. So they are going to have to make some defensive sacrifices. And, and I think they, you know, they aren't really hiding that they're going to, they're going to play some guys who you are putting out there and just kind of going to hope, but whether, you know, whether it's Beltran or Gaddis or Springer, who might be a, who I think is a, a pretty capable defender, but might be better as a corner guy. And I think they are building this around trying to score five to six runs a game and, uh, and kind of taking their chance beyond that. So what do you make of Ulyeski Guriel? It's hard to know how much we should trust the stats from last season. It's his first introduction to the majors and he'd had a long layoff and he admitted to getting fatigued because of the difference in schedule. So I don't know whether we just wipe that away and say it's a fresh start or not. Obviously, if he hits like he did last year, that's not the offense you want out of your first baseman. He's yet another guy who doesn't strike out much, but he also didn't walk much or show much power. So he's still sort of a cipher to me. I don't know whether you have any more solid estimate for for what he'll actually do. No, and I really don't. You know, he's not obviously not a, a young guy. He's you know, I think this is going to be his age 33 season. So you know, what he is as a player seems pretty well established. I would probably put some stock into just having an off season and having a major league spring training and, you know, having kind of a routine going into this season and, and have, you know, something, you know, an ability to kind of 
parcel out a season where they can manage his fatigue. And, and obviously, you know, with what I've just been talking about, about how the corner spots are, are really crowded, there is going to be some, some ways for them to manage his time off and get him better matchups and, and kind of tailor this season in a way that would uh, try to get the best from him. But, you know, in terms of, of his, his ability, I, I think, you know, is, is probably pretty well established and, and I wouldn't expect too much up or down, but he, he's the kind of guy who I think they can uh, they can kind of really make work with all these other pieces in the lineup. So, okay, stick with me for this one because this could get a little complicated. Okay. So, Kyle Hendricks came over to the Cubs uh, as sort of a throw-in. The Cubs traded Ryan Dempster to the Rangers, and the Rangers gave up Christian Villanueva and Kyle Hendricks. Then Hendricks, of course, blossomed into what he is today, and the Cubs are grateful, and it's one of the reasons that the rebuild has gone as well as has. So, in August 2012, the Astros sent to the Chicago White Sox Brett Myers and Cash, and they received, let's see, Matt Heidenreich. I don't need to pronounce these names right because you'll never hear about them. Blair Walters and a player to be named later. That player to be named later turned out to be Chris Tavinsky, who the Astros picked up very quietly. No one really would have paid too much attention. Last year, there were 142 pitchers who threw at least 100 innings, and the best park-adjusted ERAs go in order from the top, Clayton Kershaw. Kyle Hendricks and Christopher Davinsky, why uh, one point in front of Rich Hill. What is Christopher Davinsky, and to what extent does he get included in the talk about the Astros' rotation depth as opposed to just being in the bullpen? Yeah, he is. Now he was a draftee in 2011, so I don't know if he was always known or if he was a a player to be named later because of that 365-day rule. Uh, mm-hmm. with uh, player signing. So to what extent he was a sort of a true player to be named later, I don't know. But yeah, he was a very, very pleasant surprise for the team last year and, and somebody who who I think can definitely start. They're probably not going to be looking for a ton of innings out of their, their number five, number six type guy, but you know, he's a guy who has a, a pitch that he calls it the circle change that you know really works well and he had 8.6 strikeouts per nine last year so you know despite not being the the world's hardest thrower and the the kind of typical bullpen guy he was able to to put together a, a very competent strikeout rate and you know he's the kind of guy who i think is one of the reasons that that their their depth is what it is in both the rotation and the bullpen and and he could could have success in either place He's someone who can be built up pretty well as well. I know they did that with him last year where they can can kind of go from a a 10-pitch guy to a 70-pitch guy pretty quickly with him. I guess like we do with all potential multi-inning relievers, we can just declare him the next right-handed Andrew Miller. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. (laughs) All right. So you want to take us out with a win projection? Sure. Yeah. I think everything... That's uh, it's kind of been been said and out there about the offense is true. It's it's really a one through nine lineup, which is is something that even in their even in their their best days of 2004 2005, they were still running out that Osmus Everett and pitcher bottom of the uh, of the order. So this is this this is something that uh, it has been really never seen in in Houston, and I think we'll we'll take them uh, pretty far. The rotation. I think is going to be solid. I, I think they're going to, they could, if they get ahead, there is a, a pretty good route to some wins, but you know, they could, they could lose some shootouts as the year goes along. I will say that they will win 90 games. They'll be 90 and 72 and that will, uh, will put them in a 
very close race atop the AL West. I don't, I don't think they're running. I think they're the best team, but I don't, I don't think they're going to run away with it. All right. Well, you can find Zach on Twitter at Zachary Levine. Always good to talk to you, Zachary. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks. All right. We'll be right back with Michael Bauman on the Phillies. We're going to Alright, we are back. We are ready to talk about the Philadelphia Phillies. And the author of this year's Baseball Prospectus Annual Essay for the Phillies, Corinne Landry, now works for a baseball team, so she can't come on a podcast to talk about a baseball team. But we have someone whose voice is very familiar to me. He's a writer for The Ringer and my co-host on The Ringer MLB show, Michael Bauman. Hello, Michael. Hi, this is always very weird doing the effectively wild crossover. <laughs> yeah, it's a little weird. Well, this is revenge for, for Jeff coming on uh, Ringer MLB. Revenge? Is this unpleasant? Yeah, I don't know why I use that <laughs> word. All right. Evidently, this is going to be a bad segment. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of bad, we've got the Philadelphia Phillies. <laughs> so in Corinne's essay, she wrote about how the Phillies rebuild is still in this in-between stage where it could go either way. There are players who had 2016 seasons that were encouraging in some ways and discouraging in others. I'll quote from her essay now. She says, Aaron Nola is both a healthy number two starter and a pitcher whose career is felled by injury. Jorge Alfaro is both an all-star catcher and a player who can't hit his weight. J.P. Crawford is a franchise player and a frustratingly inconsistent major leaguer. Vince Velasquez is a top-of-the-rotation starter and a relief pitcher, etc. So where do you stand? Do you tend more toward the positive interpretation of rebuilding events or the negative? I think in general, I would swing toward the the optimistic side. Um, For Nola and Crawford in particular, I think the... like. Nola was really good and then he got hurt. And I think a lot of those struggles were related to his injury and Crawford. There were extenuating circumstances. Like I think I was sort of hoping he'd play in the major leagues last year, but that was probably always a little bit of an optimistic uh, expectation and his struggles in triple a, are themselves a little bit overstated because he was going from Reading, which is one of the best hitters environments, uh, in the country at any level to a more neutral environment um, in Lehigh Valley. So, and even, you know, even if he doesn't develop 20 home run power, he's still a good defensive shortstop with on-base skills who's, you know, who's walking as much as he's striking out. So I think like there are legitimate concerns about whether Velasquez can hold up for 200 innings or whether Alfaro can, I don't know, like whether the athleticism translates into actual baseball utility so there are legitimate questions about all of them but i you know we're not it's not panic time for i think any of those big prospects at the the start of last year when you'll recall the phillies were i think at or above 500 for a, like a month and a half and and people started thinking oh they're the rebuild is way ahead and then i think that's the same time of the braves had won about two games total and so there was a lot of comparison between all the things the phillies were doing right all the things the braves were doing wrong and you know, things shifted. Velasquez got worse and Nola got hurt, all that stuff. Where is your sense, if you wanted to do a uh, sort of a comparison between the Phillies and the other rebuilding teams, has the optimism of, of that hot start sort of faded? Where do you put the Phillies relative to the other four or five or however many teams are rebuilding at the same time? Well, for the, I mean, with the Braves specifically, I think the Braves with Dansby Swanson have the, the best single individual 
young player um, among those rebuilding teams. Uh, but the Phillies' strength was always sort of in depth, and you know I don't know that there's a that there's a superstar. Uh, in this group of prospects apart from Crawford and maybe Alfaro in like a best case scenario, but they've got potentially three, you know, number two or number three starters in Eikhoff and uh, Nolan Velasquez. Um, The, some of the outfielder, some of the outfield prospects are, we might be getting close to the time where put up or shut up time for Nick Williams, for instance. So, but even, even so like this is a really deep system and those guys that, uh, they started spending high draft picks on after the uh, 2007 to 2011 contention window ended. Those draft picks and the the pr- products of the Giles trade, Jimmy Rollins trade, and um, the Cole Hamels trade are all sort of starting to get close to the major leagues. Last year was the last gasp of those great Phillies teams. Carlos Ruiz was traded, and Ryan Howard is finished as a Philly and probably as a player. Was it sad for you to see those last vestiges go, or was it sort of a relief to be able to turn the page? Um, I, I think for Howard it was a relief because he was, I mean, he was just such a perfect superstar in his late twenties for. I mean, he was the the MVP in 2006, and he like that power was before the the era of the four aces. Like that was the defining defining like Phillies thing. Like that Ryan Howard could hit any pitch out at any time. When by the time he started getting hurt and the contract extension kicked in, like this guy who was just such a good soldier and such a great player in his prime had turned into a contract, and that was just sort of I don't know. It was sad to see him grow old and. You know, Ruiz was a little bit more bittersweet because he was, I mean, he was a fan favorite. I, the last piece of Major League player paraphernalia I ever bought was a, a Carlos Ruiz jersey. Um, so, I mean, it, that was sort of, that was sad to see the end of an era. But also, you know, they've got rid of Hamels and Utley and Rollins. And I think this was another thing from Corinne's essay that, like, she framed it in terms of, of how far away we are from that those five straight division title winning teams. And I think for the first time in 2017, we're in a different era. Like we're like severing the ties with, with Howard and Ruiz. It closes the door on that era for good. And now we can talk about, you know, this team belonging to Crawford and Eikhoff and I don't know, maybe Tommy Joseph as, as we go forward without always having, you know, having to look over our shoulder into the past. I know there are more important questions to ask. Some of them have been asked. Some of them will be asked. But I, uh, I was watching a Phillies game for some reason in middle or late August. And uh, Cesar Hernandez took off and he was trying to steal second base. And he stole it successfully. And then he came off the base and he was tagged out for oversliding. And the announcer responded in such a way. I paraphrased. It was Hernandez overslides again. And it sounded like this was like a problem that he had. It must have been for at least weeks leading up to that point. So... Granted, you might not have been watching the Phillies very much at the time, but yeah. on the off chance that you were, how often was Cesar Hernandez over sliding? Because he had like the I, quietest four win season in baseball, but this seems like a thing. Yeah, I I actually don't know if if that was a consistent a consistent problem. I don't. I mean, just it was not only a quiet four win season; it was a weird four win season. <laughs> like he's like I I don't know where those four wins of value come from. Like you know, you get you get to a point where you can look at a war total and you can look at the the components and sort of figure out, okay, this guy was great at getting on base and, you know, th- he's got this tool and the defense was good. And just, I don't, I don't understand how Cesar Hernandez is a good 
is a good baseball player. So it was quiet and confusing. And like at the same time, like Freddie Galvis, who's, you know, who's a good defensive shortstop who hit 20 home runs is about as bad a player as you can be given those, those two things, you know, 20 home run power and and good defense at shortstop. And you can still be Uh a bad player. And that's, I mean, it's one of the reasons that I want Crawford to come up is like, I won't have to deal with, trying to figure out one of those two guys, whether they bench Galvis or uh, move him over to second base and bench Hernandez. Do you think the Phillies struck the right balance with veterans this winter? We've talked about some teams that are just all young guys up to this point in the series, but now we're getting into the teams that at least have some measure of recognizable older players. And of course, they have guys like Howie Kendrick and Michael mm-hmm. Saunders, and they kept Tellickson. And, you know, there's, there's sort of, uh, there are some guys at least, it's not maybe quite to the extent that the Braves got some sort of stopgap no names, but the Phillies did a bit of that. Do you think they didn't do enough? Should they have done more to make a more respectable bridge to the next good team? Or should they have really burned it down like the Cubs and Astros did and not bothered with any veterans? Or do you like this sort of middle course? Well, I think there's there are several different issues sort of competing to uh, in that question. There's one is... Kendrick Saunders and Hellickson. I think Hellix I think if, if Matt Clentak uh had his his wish Hellickson would be playing somewhere else, either he would have been mm-hmm. able to get a, a deal done at the deadline or he would or Hellickson would have turned down the qualifying offer. But even, you know, that said, all it's costing the Phillies is money, and this is a team that can run a two hundred million dollar payroll if it wants to. So and they had I meant to look this up, they had with um with Howard coming off the books and uh, Matt Harrison getting bought out, they have almost no salary uh, obligations going forward. So, you know, if they want to spin Hellickson back out there, that's fine. Kendrick and Michael Saunders are a different issue because they tried, they sort of tried the, we're going to, we're just going to play the kids. So that we're going to play Tyler Goodell and Aaron Altair when, when he gets healthy. And maybe if Williams comes up at some point, then he'll get some, some playing time in an outfield corner at least for 2016. And it was like, it made me reevaluate the, the Phillies offense and the, the outfield corners made me reevaluate how much I use the phrase. It can't get any worse because it was <laughs> like their SOPS plus in, in both corners was in the high sixties. Like they didn't, I, I think the player who had any time in an outfield corner for the Phillies last year and had the highest OPS plus was Roman Quinn at 94 and they needed something like they you just there's something to be said for not caring about results. But if you're I've start, started to come around to the idea that if the results are bad enough for long enough, like just losing sucks so bad that if you do it for more, you know, if you lose 100 games for more than a couple years in a row, it's going to start to take a negative toll on players who you might have developed in that time who you want to be part of the next good team, whether, you know, we saw this with Bo Porter's slow descend into insanity in Houston. <laughs> so I think having Kendrick and Saunders in there, just in case the the kids don't, the, just in case the kids aren't ready yet. I mean, they just, they needed something. They needed to do something different. And, you know, I don't, I don't know that they're really, and I think the, the sign, you know, the problem with rebuilding teams, signing veterans is only, it only matters insofar as they're taking playing time away from somebody else. And I just don't know if the mm-hmm. the corner outfielders are ready yet, whether that's Williams, whether that's Altair, whether that's Roman Quinn, if he moves over to left in deference to Odubel Herrera. So, you know, 
they're not pl- taking playing time for anybody else, and they're not going to hit 400 weak ground balls the way Peter Borges did. When uh, when the Phillies swung the, the Cole Hamels move, obviously there were headliners in the piece. There were, what, I think six pieces coming back that they mm-hmm. got from the Rangers. But one who flew under the radar then and probably as a consequence continues to fly under the radar now is Jared Eikhoff, who seems to, his his whole reputation seems to be the underrated Philadelphia Philly. Just going off the, uh, the Fangraphs war, which I know, I know, but last year, Eikhoff 2.9 war, Cole Hamels 3.0. So... Arguably, you could say that last year, Eikhoff, who started just as many games as Hamels, was as valuable as Hamels was. What is your read on Eikhoff present and future? Do you see him as someone that you like more than, say, a far riskier Velasquez? Or I guess, what's your what's your preference in young starters and how much do you like Jared Eikhoff? I was very cautious with my how much I was going to let myself get invested in Eikhoff when, when that trade first happens. It happened. And what sort of, sort of happened is... Eikhoff and um, I guess Nick Williams, you could say, sort of switch places. That Williams was supposed to be the headliner in the deal, and I don't know how much he's ever going to amount to, but Eikhoff was, he and Alec Asher were just sort of like quad A arms, and Eikhoff comes up immediately, unveils a killer slider. I think developing that slider makes it easier to trust the results, as well as the fact that he threw almost 200 above average innings last year. Like, if he doesn't need to improve anymore to be a valuable number three starter. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't know if that that makes the whole trade worth it when you look back at the results. You know, I think there's still some development to go for Jake Thompson and and Alfaro and and even Williams. But I mean, that was certainly surprising. I guess the order I'd put him in, I'd still I'd go. It really depends on what you want, like because I think Ikoff is gonna what we saw from Ikoff last year is sort of what you're gonna get, and Velasquez has good number two, maybe low number one starter stuff, but I don't know if he's ever going to, whether his arm's going to hold up, whether he's going to develop the the third pitch or, you know, develop that, be able to go fastball, change up curveball. I would still go Nola one, Ikoff two, Velasquez three. I think Nola's athleticism and the curveball and the command, um, you know, his strikeout rate bumped way up to almost 10 per nine. Um, from his rookie year, he was in the high sevens, I think. I think if he comes back healthy, he's going to be a workhorse and he's going to be probably better than Ikoff is now. So you mentioned the spending and there was a recent MLB.com interview with Phillies president Andy McPhail. And he was saying that maybe next winter is when they'll really start to spend and that maybe they'd get their payroll into the top half or third of teams by the 2018 season. Is that in line with what you were expecting slash hoping that they would spend next winter is at the right time and other than make smart moves but don't make bad moves do you have any more specific advice for what they should spend on or what they need to do to shore up what they already have um i think yeah i think that's about right i there when when i was growing up the phillies like talked about themselves like a small market team. And this is, I think, the the fourth biggest media market in the U.S. that they play in. And we saw in the late 2000s when they were selling out however many hundreds of games it was in a row, like they spent to the tax every single year. And I'm sure they were just printing money beyond that. So you know, this past offseason, I don't think the window's open yet. I don't think there was any, you know, if there was, if there was value in the market, I think they could have made a move like the Nationals signing Jason Worth to say, okay, you know, here's, a, we're going to go get a star and let the team sort of build around him. But there wasn't, there wasn't really anybody like that. So they, 
you know, mm-hmm. they got Saunders to, to fill a hole in right field and they'll spend next season. As far as what they want to get, I think they're in a good spot because they're because of what they're developing internally. Like they've got their center fielder. They're almost certainly going to have their shortstop. So they don't need to they can go buy at the corners where I think there's more value. You know, I don't know how long term a solution Tommy Joseph is at first base, even as well as he hit last year. You know, I think they've got three reliable starting pitchers. You know, even if, if Hellickson and, and Buckholtz are gone after this season, I think Noel Eikhoff, Velasquez, it's two, three, four in your in your starting rotation. So I don't know, there's they've got a lot of options in terms of, of what they can spend on. And they don't necessarily have to they can go get somebody like whoever the how the Mark Trumbo is in next year's market, they can just go buy a corner guy who can hit forty home runs if if that's what if that's what falls into their laps. So speaking of the corners, one of the reasons that I think people got excited about the Phillies rebuild and thought it was a little further ahead was people assumed that they had a a pretty good developing third baseman in Michael Franco, mm-hmm. who had a, a big half season when he was 22, two years ago. Last year, he lost 70 points off of his slugging. He lost 40 points off his OBP, 25 points off his average in a year where everyone else was hitting the ball harder. Uh, his defense, I believe, also got worse, but he's never had a very strong defensive reputation. So no. he's only 24 years old now. But what is your read on Michael Franco at present and how much of this is a natural stumbling versus cause for legitimate concern? I think it's a little bit of both. I think that Franco always needed a lot of things to go right to stay at third base, which always, like it, he is so slow. Like he is almost <laughs> too slow to play anywhere apart from first base, which is which just feels like a waste because he's got good hands and a good um you know, like an 80 grade throwing arm, they would just seem to, it just seems like a waste to throw that at first base. And the other thing is like, he's sort of, you know, he's not on this level of hitter, but if he's going to be good, he's going to be like the Vlad Guerrero, uh, Josh Hamilton type of hitter where he gets on base, not by walking, he's just going to have to hit in the high two nineties. And he's got one of those swings and he's strong enough that he can hit almost any, any pitch for power. But if he's missing, then, you know, he's what you saw last year. So, you know, he's still, He's still young. He's still only had about a year and a half of um, major league service time. But there's also, I mean, there's a pretty decent chance that he winds up moving to first base at some point. Are you optimistic about the Brian Bannisterization of Buckholtz? Well, it's, I mean, we've on on our podcast talked to about seven pitchers who have been Bannisterized <laughs> into, you know, into competence. So I don't know. <laughs> I've also watched a lot of Clay Buckholtz over the years, and that what? makes it Why? hard to be optimistic. <laughs> I don't know. I got man. I got caught at a at a Rangers Red Sox game last year with like a, an eight twenty local start time, and Buckholtz was on the mound, and uh, it was like it was terrible. Just um, go home. Yeah, I I mean it's like I'm looking at the I'm looking at the clock. I'm like, at what point is it unprofessional to, to leave the the press box in the seventh inning? Um, so I I probably won't be watching many Clay Buckholtz starts. You can just tell the other people in the press box that are going down early for interviews. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> definitely what I'm doing. It's funny. Matt Stairs is the new Phillies hitting coach, which is great just to have Matt Stairs around again. You'd think that his hitting musk will just rub off on everyone. <laughs> and I was hoping I was reading an interview about his hitting philosophies, and I was hoping that they would just be like, come off the bench and mash taters. That's what <laughs> Matt Stairs did. That's sort of how he but, talked as a player. Yeah, yeah, but he sounds like you and I have Doug Latta on our podcast today, who is a hitting instructor who advocates the 
uppercut fly ball oriented swing and Matt Stair sort of sounds like him he's citing exit velocity and he's talking about guys hitting the ball on the ground being a bad idea which I guess makes sense in that Matt Stairs was just a slugger who would hit fly balls and some of them would leave the ballpark but I don't know I was expecting him not to talk like that <laughs> but he does like there there's a little bit of the how I maybe just because it's ex Philly's first baseman, I, I want to bring up John Crock's name, but I mean he doesn't <laughs> talk like like John Crock. Like he yeah. he was a, he was a pretty good color guy in terms of actually breaking down the signs of hitting. And I get you know you don't you don't look like a school resource officer and then play twenty years in the big leagues unless <laughs> you know what you're doing. So I I think he'll be a, a good hitting coach just based on what I know about him as a broadcaster. Have you seen anything stranger than the early part of last year where Arduble Herrera was walking every three times he came to the plate? No. <laughs> <laughs> Very definitive. It's. Yeah, it's and particularly like Odubel Herrera is another guy like the stats make more sense than Cesar Hernandez. But like the way he looks like I've never seen an uglier. Well, I don't know. I've seen Hunter Pence, but like it's on that <laughs> level of, of ugly components coming together to make a really good baseball player. And like he just decided he was going to walk. You know, this was after after being a hacker his entire rookie year. I don't know, like I've given up trying to predict what he's going to do. I think he's been consistent over his first couple years, but yeah, he's I think he's still developing and I think that that contract that the Phillies signed him to is is going to look really bad for him, good for the team by the time yeah. it's over. I got a message. So, uh just for for reference, Herrera in uh in April, first month of the year, he walked 22% of the time. He yeah. came to the plate, basically Joey Votto when he's on one of his hot streaks and there's no one else to pitch to. I did. I remember getting a uh, a text message around the end of the month, or maybe the start of the next month, from a Phillies guy who said, "Why don't pitchers ever throw him a strike? No, we none of us get it." <laughs> Referring to him and the rest of the front office, which is funny. No question, observation. And he was and he was having the time of his life too. I mean, oh he God. bat flips everything, but he he was bat flipping <laughs> walks during that uh, uh, that early stretch of last season. Twenty three walks. <laughs> In the first month, That's his, he had 19 in the second half. Well, they figured out that, they, you know, he's not going to swing at everything anymore. You wrote a whole article about how many home runs Freddie Galvis hit last year. How yeah. many home runs will Freddie Galvis hit this year? I guess it's impossible to predict because I'm asking you to predict whether maybe the ball will still be juiced or whatever is going Good, on. I'm glad wide, we're but... going with this as the, <laughs> like, this is our our official position is the ball was juiced last year. <laughs> it's kind of my official position more so than Freddie Galvis as a slugger now. But uh, do you have a prediction? I'm going to say nine. I think he loses playing time to to J.P. Crawford, and I think that cuts in, like, he's not going to get the 500 or 600 plate appearances he got last year. Pakoda says he's going to hit 11 in 368 plate appearances, which <laughs> just strikes me as absurd. I'm I'm definitely going to take the under on that. I mean, I think there's, like, there's got to be some regression. Like, the ball can't be that juiced. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to go with nine. Okay. Two-part question. First of all, how how much do you expect Alfaro to uh, to play this season in the majors? Something more than September call-up, I think. Okay, but at this the same time, like the the Phillies, I, I, I described the the White Sox catching situation is uh, they're separating sheep from the goats, and the White Sox catchers are beyond goats, and the the Phillies are sort of the same way. Like Cameron Rupp's not there's there might be a point at which 
Clintac and Pete McCannon just get tired of watching Cameron Rupp and, and bring Alfaro up. Okay, so, so who uh, who in the major leagues this year finishes at the higher strikeout rate, Alfaro or Vincent Velasquez? I gotta look up what. Uh, okay, so Alfaro he's he's projected for the record. Alfaro projected by Steamer for twenty seven percent. Velasquez last year twenty seven point six percent strikeout rate. If if Alfaro gets like a hundred and twenty plate appearances or something like that, and just has a couple bad weeks, he could get up into the thirties. I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Velasquez might bump thirty. But Ooh. like, there's there's only there's only so much farther up he can go. So I'd I'd say Alfaro strikes out more than hitters who who face uh, Velasquez. I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Joaquin Benoit, who is on the <laughs> Phillies now, and is still a really good reliever. He is so good still. He's 39 years old. He's going to turn 40 this year, and since 2010. He has recorded a 2.4 ERA in 427 innings. That's a 166 ERA plus with 10 strikeouts per nine. And he basically had the same numbers last year too. And he seems like the rare guy who doesn't really like to be a closer or would rather not be a closer. And so maybe he's kind of not gotten his due because of that. But man, he's yeah, been good for a really long time. It's going to be a weird bullpen too because they're yeah. they're going with John Margom as, to, as the, the closer again, I guess just because mm-hmm. he was last year. And he was like, if, if this was 15 years ago, he would have been traded for some ridiculous prospect hall because somebody would have thought that saves were you know, a product of, of anything other than usage, but I don't know if he's one of the five best relief pitchers on the Phillies right now. All right. Want to give us a win total prediction? Um, 73. I think that's, is that progress? What did they do last year? 71. Progress. All right. Yeah. Someone's feeling optimistic. A little bit of progress. Yeah. Yeah. More NOLA. That's all that is. Yeah. All right. Well, we are done. I've enjoyed this podcast crossover. You can mm-hmm. find Michael writing at The Ringer and talking about baseball with me on The Ringer MLB show and tweeting terrible puns at MJ underscore Bauman. Thanks, Michael. Talk right. to you again soon. Yeah. <laughs> really soon, I imagine. <laughs> Okay, that will do it for today. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support include Jack Connis, Aaron Saylor, Fiergal O'Neill, Matthew Eli, and Timothy Cullen. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. We'll do an email show next, so keep your questions coming to podcast at fangraphs.com, as well as the Patreon messaging system. We will talk to you later this week. Come down from the mountain. Lose your sense in the fountain. You cross over, you cross over and make it big. <laughs>